In Philippians, as we do, I'm going to do an overview of Philippians very quickly and talk about Paul and uh, his why he was a man of contentment. In Philippians chapter four, there is a statement made by Paul. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison, chained between two Roman guards, two years before his martyrdom, in prison, writing the church in Philippi chain between guards that change every four to eight hours or so. And, and he says in chapter four, this incredible statement where he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to live in prosperity and I know how to get by with very little. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I, you look at that and you go, in prison, chained to guards, two years from martyrdom, right into a small church that he had birthed in Philippi. And, and yet the key theme of this little epistle called Philippians is joy. And so you back up and you say, why? I was reading recently about, about people who make statements and the author said that's nothing more than a refrigerator magnet bromide. A bromide is a pithy statement that has no foundation in fact in that definition. In other words, there's nothing more than a refrigerator magnet utopian statement that has no basis in reality like, you know, smile, this is the best day of your life. Well, really? Somebody said the other day that I'm going to be as happy today as a bird with a french fry. Really? <laughs> Whatever that means. You know, so, so, so there are these refrigerator magnet utopian statements. And then there are statements that are grounded in fact. Let me give you an example. In 1984, there was a general election, presidential election. The sitting president running again was a man named Ronald Reagan. He was running against Walter Mondale, who had been the vice president under Jimmy Carter, the previous president. But I remember in 1984, the Reagan camp came out with this incredible 30-second video that was on all the airways that just stuck in my mind. The theme was, it's morning again in America. And he showed a man raising the flag, and he showed a family playing in the yard, and a guy washing his car, and, you know, probably a puppy running through the grass. I don't know, but it was just, a, and he said, he said, today inflation is half what it was four years ago. Today unemployment is lower than it was four years ago. T today uh, interest rates are half what they were four years ago. And then he says this, who would want to go back to the failed policies of the previous administration? It's morning again in America. It was a statement with some facts behind it. And obviously America bought it because the only, every state voted for Reagan except Minnesota. The People's Republic of Minnesota voted for Walter Mondale and, and the District of Columbia. So th those are the only two, only two places. Compared to four years later, 1988, as we go down this corridor of history, there was a song that was the number one song in America for two weeks. And it makes you really question about people who lived in 1988. The title of the song was Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. 
Now, some of you are laughing because you remember that song. Uh, the, the, the song was, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And the lyrics to the song were, Don't Worry, Be Happy. <laughs> really, that's it. If you're ever, if you're, teenagers, if you're ever forced by one of your teachers, you've got to memorize a song as punishment for being late for class. Say, I picked Don't Worry, Be Happy. Because that's why he said that the whole song. And then he made a couple of other statements and... But it was basically, don't worry, be happy because you don't worry because you're happy. Don't worry, be happy. There's, there's no basis for what he was saying. Or I, I read a book early in the year, and this person was quoted, and I thought, really, she couldn't have said that. And then I went to her blog, and she said it. There's one woman named Marianne Williamson. This is utopian refrigerator magnet thinking, run it the muck. Marianne Williamson has written four bestsellers on the New York Times bestseller list. She's a, a positive thinking, Eastern mysticism, New Age type person who's running for Congress now in California. But she, she wrote a, this blog is entitled, Our Response to Terrorism. And she said, we fight terrorism by doing this five minutes every day. Meditate the following way. Pray that anyone even thinking of committing a terrorist act anywhere in the world be surrounded by a huge golden egg. I'm not even going to make comments on this. I'm just going to read it, okay? <laughs> the eggshell is made of the spiritual equivalent of titanium. It is impenetrable. Any malevolent, hateful, or violent thought that emanates from the mind of the terrorist cannot get past the confines of the egg shell. Before the violent thought can turn into violent action, it is stopped by the force of this meditative field. Energetically, the terrorist is quarantined. On the inside of the egg, see a shower of golden light pouring from an eggshell into the heart and mind of the terrorist. Pray for your lost brother. See him or her being healed by the force of divine love. Spread this message to everyone. That's, that's refrigerator, magnet, utopian, idealistic thought. So I go to the Apostle Paul now. And you, you read Philippians 4. And you go, why? Why was the Apostle Paul able to say, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know how to live in prosperity, and it's sweet. And I know how to live in want. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, why? Why can you say that? Why can you say you're content? Why can you say Christ strengthens you. I want to do, a, as a 2013 goodbye and 2014 hello, do an overview of this and just mention four, four realities that, that built this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Reality number one is Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, I, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, these things should make us courageous and confident and hopeful. Number one, whoever, he who began a good work in you, if you're a Christ follower, the, the one who's began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. What God starts, he finishes. In Romans 8, one of the key passages in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about his, his standing in Christ, and he says this, Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Question mark. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen people? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Question mark. Answer, Christ Jesus, the one who died. And more than that, the one who was raised and is now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us right now. He says, if he's given us Christ, he'll give us everything with Christ. If we are in Christ, if we're one of his people, he'll give us everything in Christ. Because the one who's the judge died on the cross for our sins, was risen victorious over the grave, ascended into heaven, and the one who is the Christ is praying for us. Wow. Wow. And so one reason Paul can say I'm content is the same reason we can say we're content if we're Christ followers because the God who began the good work will bring it to completion Do you have that comfort? Do you have that contentment? I was reading Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah 2 verse 5 says this. And I will be to her, God's people, Jerusalem. I will be to her a wall, a fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. I thought about a mom and a dad walking into a nursery with a newborn and just standing there and saying, God, be the wall of fire around this baby. Be the glory in their midst. Or your teenager, you slip down the hall at night and you put your hand against their door. You say, God, be a wall of fire around them. Be the glory in their midst. Is that the God who began a good work will bring it to completion. That's one reason. The year is uh, 1911, it's August 1911. There's a man named Vincenzo Perugia, Italian. He's in France. He goes to the Lord. What's the argument? Say it to me. Louvre. The Louvre. Goes to the Louvre. 1911. The Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci is hanging there. It's just hanging there. Just, just, just hanging there. So Vincenzo Perugia goes up to it, looks around takes it, slips it under his trench coat, buttons it up, holds it. It's a pretty small painting. And he walks out, and he tries to go out the back door, but it's locked. And he's standing there perplexed, what do I do? And a worker comes by and says, can I help you, sir? Well, so I'm trying to leave. And the door's locked. So let me help you out. So he pulls out a screwdriver and a key and opens the door and lets him out. He says, have a good day. Well, thank you very much, sir. He goes on. They go back in the art gallery. Where's the Mona Lisa? It's gone. It's a national crisis. What's interesting is there were more people who visited the art gallery to see where the Mona Lisa formerly hung than they did when it was there. But there was a nationwide search. No one could find it. Two and a half years later, two and a half years later this man who was mentally unbalanced contacts an art curator and says, I have the Mona Lisa. He says, really? He says, yeah. Well, why don't you bring it in? He brought it in. He gets out his look. He says, that's really the Mona Lisa. I know. He calls the police. He's arrested. He goes to prison. His defense was, Painted by an Italian, he should be in Italy. Italy proclaimed him a hero. He got a very short prison sentence. <laughs> but when I read that, I thought, many of us think that our standing in Christ is like the Mona Lisa in 1911. It's gone. No, it's like the Mona Lisa today. You go to the Louvre today, it's behind a barrier there is bulletproof, shatterproof glass in front of it. It's in a special chamber that if there's a massive earthquake, it will be protected. You can't get to it. 
See, 1 Peter 1 says, you receive a salvation that is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. It was like the Mona Lisa today, not 1911. And as I read that, I thought, you know, does that bring great comfort and contentment to my soul, to my heart? Paul in prison. Why is he content? The God who began a good work will bring it to completion. Number two, Paul says that he believes and knows that the purposes of God are being worked out in his life. This is amazing to me. Chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, he was chained between two guards. Every eight hours, every ten hours, whatever, just talk to them. Befriend them. Tell them about Christ. It says this, And most of the brothers here in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, the brothers, as they see my response and the way I'm handling adversity, They've been emboldened by the Holy Spirit to speak the word. And then he says, the next paragraph, can go into it. He said, I know some people are preaching Christ to spike me. I don't know how they do that, but they did it. Paul said, no big deal. Jesus is being preached. He says, I rejoice that the gospel is going forward. Paul, Paul could rejoice because he knew that the gospel was going forward. Paul could rejoice because he knew that God was using him to advance the gospel. He could say in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Now, do, do you see your circumstances it's being lived out in such a fashion that you're proclaiming Christ, whether it's good or bad, whether it's sad or joy, are you proclaiming Christ? Do you, do you really believe that God is working His purposes in your life? See, Paul could say that in part because he was surrendered to the Lord. See, as you surrender to the Lord, and you say, God, you've got this. Paul pleads with the church, he says, verse 127, only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, then any affection and sympathy and complete my joy by being like-minded. He's saying, he's saying, go strong. He's saying, God's purposes are being fulfilled in my life. Here's the balance. As I surrender who I am to Him. Uh, there, there's an old hymn that goes like this, but we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the love he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I believe that's true. We, we never will know the delights of his love until we lay it on the altar. Say, so God, use my life. God, God, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay it out right here. This, I need to lay it on the altar. I believe your, work, your purposes are working in my life as I'm chained to guards because I've laid my life on the altar. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Are you walking in repentance? Are you making adjustments to the calling of God in your life? 
One of the battle cries of the believer is in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, and everyone who draws near to God must believe that he exists, and he, he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Two things. You've got to believe that God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you've got to believe He rewards those who seek Him, which means they lay, they lay it out. They, they go for it. When I was first a believer, there's a little book you can go on the web and get it. It's called My Heart, Christ Home by a man named Unger, I think it is. And it's just a simple 12-page book, but it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a metaphorical overview of, of the Christian life. And it says that, that the Christian life is like a house. And you become a believer. And I was a brand-new Christian. When I read this, it said, Christ comes into the foyer, the sitting room, the kitchen, the dining room, the pantry. You say, Lord, come upstairs, look at, look at the master bedroom, the, the guest room, the, 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 the study. And then there's this closet that's locked. And the author says, Jesus says, how about this closet, this door? Says, no, 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 not, not that. Everything else is yours, but not that. And the author said, no, my heart must be Christ home, everything. And it's, it's an ongoing daily commitment. It's like Lewis says so beautifully in mere Christianity. He says, you come to faith in Christ. You think that Christ wants to be your Lord and wants to make a nice cottage out of what you already have in your life. And yet he comes in, he starts knocking out walls and taking down support beams, and putting up a new room, and, and reupholstering that, or whatever. And he says, and it hurts at times. He says, you think Christ wants to have a cottage, but he wants to make you into a magnificent palace, because he wants to live in you. Amen. So I, I think Paul can have incredible contentment. Because he said, you know, God is working his purposes out in my life, even in prison. He says, I know what it's like to be on the top of my game. I know what it's like to live in prosperity. It's sweet, but it's not my calling right now. And I'm trusting God with that. And God works out his purposes as we surrender. And then thirdly, in this book, he talks about his position in the Lord. And this, this would be for the trumpet's Blair, and this, this is the main deal. But Paul, Paul says in Philippians 3, he, he says, you know, when it came to being a Pharisee, so he was saved when he was a Pharisee, he came to Christ, he was a Pharisee. He says, I was faultless. Now, uh, the Pharisees were, were, were the special ops of Judaism. The Pharisees were, as far as the IQ test, they were the men's society on steroids. The Pharisees were way out there. They did 50 things every morning to make themselves right, and 100 things every afternoon. And, and Paul says, when it came to being a Pharisee, I was faultless. I was on the performance track. I was doing it. I was doing it on my own flesh. I was going to work my way in, in, the, in the good favor of God come hell or high water. He persecuted the church. The first martyr in the Christian church, a guy named Stephen. We think Paul was there. They laid their garments at his feet, and he said, stone him to death, guys. That was Paul. And then Paul came to know Christ. And this is what he says. It's such a beautiful statement. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, he says, 
Whatever was my gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He said, I had been living my whole life saying, my righteousness depends on my obedience. And when I came to know the glory of Christ, the sin-bearing Savior who died on the cross for my sin, all that performance, all that go-get-it mentality, all that faultless Pharisaism became nothing more than something you throw into the outhouse. So I went to my study and all those plaques said Pharisee of the Year, Pharisee of the Year, good God, Pharisee of the Year, Pharisee of the Year. I ripped them down and I put up the cross. He says, because of that, he says, I have contentment. Listen, your hearts are spring-loaded to work your way into God's sight. You have to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. It's not what you can do or have done. It's what He has done for you. See, the whole Bible's about grace. I was even thinking about Hebrews 4 the other day. Hebrews is written to a group of people that are kind of vacillating. And so Hebrews 4 is like a football coach giving a halftime speech to his team when they're 10 points down and they're spent. Go forward, man. Go forward. So in Hebrews 4, 11, and it's just a strong statement. It says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience like they did the children of Israel. Strive, enter the rest. And then verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, and is sharper than a double-edged sword, and it pierces the division of soul and spirit. I both join some marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a strong verse. It gets you. Verse 13 is a strong verse. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his holy eyes. Wow. But then, then the gospel. Verse 14. Since then, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Four, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence. So see, in the midst of all these, listen to me, get it together, get it right, the word of God, accountable to God. He says, since then we have a great high priest who died on the cross for our sins, who rose victorious over death, and he ascended into the heavens. His name is Jesus. And he's a great high priest who can sympathize with us in every way imaginable except sin. And because of that great high priest, we come with confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is in us. Now, that's, that is the glory of the gospel. Does that bring you comfort every day? The world condemns, the world belittles, your conscience belittles, puts you down, throws you down. Are you able to say, 
is to all of Christ. One of the great lines in the Institutes, I just thought of this. It was really in the beginning of the Institutes by John Calvin, where Calvin says, we must be so stung with unhappiness with ourselves that we seek the face of God. And he, he, says, he says, we will never seek the face of God until we are stung by our own unhappiness. I think that's true today as a believer for a long time, as when I come to Christ. God, I can't do it. You have to live in me in strength. See, Paul, Paul sitting in prison, facing death, chained to guards. The word of the day is content. Contentment. Strong word. And then fourthly, he says this. He says, I have contentment because I realize that this experience in prison and the potential martyrdom, which we know happened, is not the last word. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, verse 19, says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, their minds are on earthly things, but we're different. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He said, listen, the good news, the good news is this is not the final word. Death is not the final word. Disease is not the final word. Cancer is not the final word. To be absent from the body, he says in chapter 1, is to be present with the Lord. He says here, he says, one day when Christ comes again, we will exchange our broken down bodies for resurrection bodies that are like his, and it will be glorious beyond words. It's called the hope of heaven. I was reading recently about immortality. Russian multimillionaire Dmitry Iskov says he believes in immortality. He's pumped millions into his 2045 initiative, vowing to cure death within the next three decades. Then there's Google's director of engineering, Ray Kurzweil, who predicts that humans will simply merge with computers, uploading our consciousness and memories and becoming immortal super beings. So determined is Kurzweil to beat death that he gobbles up to 250 vitamins and other pills a day that he believes will help him live until 2045 when he says immortality will become a reality. He's 65, so that means he'll be 70, I mean 93, 97, something like that. That's Ray Kurzweil. And then Suzanne Summers, thigh master fame, <laughs> says that she believes that she'll live well into her hundreds, and every day when she's uh, 99, she will greet her husband, who will that time be 108, and they'll have a wonderful day, including all types of physical affection, and they'll live as if they're in their 20s. If you buy her vitamins. That's the key. Okay. Um, there are two things that are absolute certainties in your life. Taxes and death. It's going to happen. Conversely, Woody Allen. I love Woody Allen. Woody Allen is 76 years old, and recently he gave an interview to The Guardian, a newspaper out of, out of England, and he said, aging is just bad business. It's a confirmation that the anxieties and terrors I've had all my life were accurate. 
There's no advantage to aging. You don't get wiser. You don't get more mellow. You don't see life in a more glowing way. You have to fight your body decaying, and you have less options. He says there's only one way to handle the horror of mortality, distraction. He says, I play the clarinet and I watch NBA games. By the way, I was really thrilled. The NBA had four games on the TV on Christmas Day. That's just a random thought. I mean, who, who cares? You know, anyway, he says, he says this. He says, you know, you're walking down Park Avenue, and who's to say a piano won't fall from the 24 and hit you on the head? Life is random. He says, making a film a year also stops him from dwelling on death. Quote, getting involved in a movie occupies all my anxiety. I always ask, did I write a good scene for this actress? Or if, if I wasn't concentrated on that, I'd be thinking about larger issues. And there are un, they are unresolvable, and you're checkmated whichever way you go. So there's no answers. And wherever you go in life, you're checkmated. Well, let me tell you this. The Apostle Paul says there are resolvable issues. And you are not checkmated. That the gospel is the gospel of hope. And so I say, brothers and sisters, as I look at this man in prison between two guards, I say we should be people of courage and conviction and hope as we go forward because we know that when God begins something, he finishes it. Because we know that God is working out his purposes as we surrender to him, because we know that our standing is based upon the finished work of Christ, and because heaven is our home. Death is not the final word. There's a book by Ed Welch, and he talks about warriors. And he says, warriors are visionaries minus the optimism. Warriors are visionaries minus the optimism. Listen, I'm not that smart. I can think of a thousand reasons we should be worrying about what's going to happen between now and 6 o'clock. Some of you are much smarter. You can think of 10,000. Warriors are visionaries without the optimism. You see, when, when you're chained between two guards... And you know that there is a God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who begins the good work in you and he brings it to completion. And, and you realize that God's working his purposes in you, that he is spreading the gospel through your horrific imprisonment. And you realize your standing in Christ is just that. It is in Christ. And you realize when you die that heaven awaits and you're going to have a glorified body one day, then you can say this, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. I know how to live in prosperity and want, how to suffer hunger and to have overflowing food pantries because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I want that. I want that. There's a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, who wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I want that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this clear testimony from a man in prison, a man who formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, who cursed your name, who sanctioned the murder of your saints, who breathed out, by his own admission, murderous threats, but who met you, who tore Pharisee of the year off of his wall and put up a cross. I pray, God, that as we understand the wonder of the cross and the goodness of your work, that we would be people who say content, trust, that we would surrender and find grace, deep grace in Christ. God, may your 
hand be upon us in 2014 in a strong way. Whether it's prison or whether it's living in prosperity, may we say with the Apostle Paul, content, content. In Jesus' name.